0: good morning. My friend Josh Fitzpatrick once told a story about taking his 17-month-old daughter to the beach for the first time. He said he and his wife Megan were very excited to show her the ocean. And so when they got there, they set up their chairs and their towels and their umbrellas, and then they went to put the baby on the sand. And the baby had other ideas. And as they placed the baby down on the sand, she lifted her legs up. And the closer she came to the sand, the higher her legs were lifted. She was not going to touch that sand. So, after a while of trying, they finally gave up and placed her on the towel underneath the umbrella. And my friend Josh went and got a bucket of ocean water and brought it over to her at the, at the towel. And at first, she kind of just splashed in it, but then she really started falling in love with this bucket of ocean water. And she stood in it, and she would get this really big smile standing in it, just filled with so much joy. I asked Josh to send me a picture of his daughter at the beach, and he sent me this. (laughs) Here's little Emily standing in a bucket of ocean water. Completely unaware that an entire ocean of water is just a few yards away. She's feeling so much joy in the smallest bucket of water, oblivious to the immeasurable joy she would feel if she simply looked up. We are in the fifth week of our series, Jesus Revelation, where we are looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and seeing how it pulls back the curtain to reveal who Jesus is. Part of our mission at Glen Kirk is to be a worshiping community. And our prayer with this series is that it would help us see Jesus's glory with more clarity and therefore make us a more passionate worshiping community. The first week we looked at Jesus as the son of man. We learned that Jesus is not, only, is not someone that we can contain or control or co-op for our own agenda, but that Jesus is someone we worship in awe of and in intimacy with as our prophet, priest, and king. The second week, we looked at Jesus as the worthy lamb who alone is worthy to carry out God's plan of salvation for the world. The third week, we saw Jesus as the infant chased by the dragon, and I'm glad I didn't pull the short straw on that one. (laughs) But that taught us that Jesus is a participant in an unseen spiritual war in heaven and on earth, and that he is the child who at the cross defeated the dragon. And last week we read about Jesus as the groom at the wedding feast. For we as the people of God are looking forward to the day of the wedding between Jesus and the church, the greatest love story of all time. And in our worship, we are filled with joy as we anticipate that coming day. And so this morning we are looking at the next image of Jesus found in the book of Revelation. Jesus as the temple of God. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, and 22, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings, on, kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated how are we to understand what's going on here? Where does this image of John fit within the story of God and God's people? If you'll remember back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we encountered this symphony of creation as God speaks everything into existence. God speaks the world and every animal and bird and sea creature into existence and the crown achievement of God's creation is humanity made in God's very own image, and all of creation is said to be very good. But this good creation is marred with the entrance of sin and evil and death in Genesis chapter three. Harmony between humans and God and between humans and other humans is disrupted. And yet... Even in the midst of this brokenness, God hints at a redemptive plan, promising that the offspring of the woman would crush evil under its foot. Throughout Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, God has promised over and over and over again that all things will be made new. This plan of redemption for the world has been unfolding, and here in our passage this morning... In John's eighth vision in Revelation, John sees what that might look like when God makes good on God's promises and all things are made new. Just before our passage this morning, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. And God is seated on God's throne and is saying, I am making everything new. And this is the context in which our passage this morning is found. A heaven and an earth made new. Heaven descending upon earth. This relationship between heaven and earth and this vision is is closer than heaven and earth seem to be in our reality and in this new heaven and new earth, God, uh, John sees this new Jerusalem as a kind of city, garden, country mashup. And he surveys the city and he notices a few things that are a little bit strange. First, there's no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no sun or moon for the glory of God gives us it its light and the Jesus, the Lamb, is its lamp. John sees this garden and this river of life the tree of life, and God with God's people. This is a hopeful vision. Assurance that God who has been faithful in the past, the God who we read about in scripture will continue to be faithful into the future. God will make good on God's promises and will make all things new. I read this great quote about prophecy a couple weeks ago in a kid's book of all places. Uh, I was reading to my son, Jonathan, my four-year-old, about the biblical prophet Miriam. Our kids are named Jonathan and Miriam, so we have kids' books about these characters in the Bible, and they're kind of everywhere. But there was this great line in there about prophecy, because Miriam is a prophet, and it said, "'Prophecy is a cloudy glass, a muddy river, a curtain pulled a bit aside.' What I've appreciated so much about this series is that Pastor Tim has acknowledged that Revelation is prophecy, it's vision. It's a curtain pulled a little bit aside. It's not a clear view. It's not perfectly spelled out. Some in the Christian faith have used the book of Revelation to claim that there is perfect clarity, even down to the exact time that Jesus will come back. And that's not really what this book is meant to do. And that's why I've loved this quote. It reminds us that prophecy re- reveals a little bit, but it's still cloudy. And so it requires theological humility when we approach this, and I've appreciated Pastor Tim and his approach. So what you're gonna see from me today is a lot of passion, because I'm passionate about this piece of scripture, but I also am well aware of what we're reading. And I wanna come to the text humbly, as Pastor Tim did, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. (laughs) So what might this vision of John's teach us about who Jesus is and what Jesus will do? Let's look at a few pieces of it and explore it. The first thing I wanna dive into is the temple. John says, I don't see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. As Pastor Tim mentioned already in this series, the image of Jesus as the Lamb is the most prominent image of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus is described over and over as this lamb that bears the wounds of having been sacrificed. And in the Gospels, that's exactly what happened. Jesus, the lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. But here in Revelation 21, Jesus as the lamb is also described as the temple. And throughout Jewish history, the temple represented God's presence with God's people. While the people of God were wandering in the desert, God was with them in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, a kind of mobile tent structure that they used while they were wandering. And then when they could build a permanent building, God resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the permanent temple. In the New Testament, we see that God dwelled among God's people in the form of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And after Jesus ascends to heaven at the end of the gospel stories, the Holy Spirit descends upon God's people. And the apostle Paul in Ephesians says that, the, that God's people all together are the temple of God. It's where God resides. God lives in us. So the temple represents God's presence with God's people. And the temple was also the center of Jewish religious life. It was where babies were dedicated. (laughs) Got me too. (laughs) Where people came to worship and pray, where priests did their work, where the Torah was read and taught, and perhaps most importantly, the temple was where sacrifices were made to atone for sins, to make people right with God. So what might it mean for Jesus to be the temple in this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who was slaughtered for our sins. In the words of the New Testament scholar, Greg Coaster, Jesus functioned as the temple because in him atonement was made and the divine presence was revealed. In other words, Jesus is a temple because Jesus fulfills the most important functions of the temple. What use could we possibly have in the new, te- new heaven and new earth of a temple when we have Jesus with us at all times. Why would we need to sacrifice at the temple when Jesus has sacrificed for us and made us right with God? Why would we need to come to the temple to hear God's words read aloud when we are in the presence of Jesus, God's living word? What possible purpose could a temple, a house of God, serve for those who have unencumbered, unfettered access to God? In the gospel of John, Jesus described himself as the temple. He said, you will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And that's what happened. He was crucified, died and buried and three days later rose from the dead. How is Jesus revealed in this vision? There is no temple for Jesus is the temple where we are mate ride with God, where we are in the presence of God the living word. So Jesus is the temple. But the second image I wanna, I wanna hone in on here in this prophecy is the light. Jesus is also described as being the light. The city does not need the sun or the moon, says John, to shine on it. For the glory of God gives us its light and the lamb is its lamp. How strange that this new heaven and this new earth doesn't require the sun or the moon. What functions do the sun and the moon serve for us? I think of things like the sun being the main source of heat and light for the world, keeps the planet alive. The sun provides much of what plants need to make their own food, and it regulates hormones. It's central to life on this earth. The light from the sun keeps the darkness at bay, illuminating all things during the day. And the moon sets the tides and for the Jewish people sets the calendar, the seasons. So we see this source of life. We see timekeeping, illuminating all things. And in this vision, there's no need for anything else to do that except God Almighty and the Lamb. It is not the sun or the moon that provides anything for us in the new heaven and the new earth, but God, Jesus because the glory of God gives the city light and the lamb is its lamp. Furthermore, in this vision, there is no night, no end to Jesus's light, forever shining. And that sounds an awful lot like what it says in the gospel of John, that Jesus, the true light was coming into the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in 1 John, when it says that God is light and in God, there is no darkness at all. And the gates of the city are never closed. According to scholar Craig Keener, the gates of ancient cities would be closed at night to protect the city from any possible invasion that would happen while everyone was sleeping. But here there's no need for that. No one is waging war. Nothing bad is being brought into the city. In fact, the only thing being brought in is the glory and honor of the nations. Jesus's light is never ending, keeping darkness at bay and the gates of the city are forever open, giving everyone access to God at all times. Surely we see glimpses of this light from time to time in our life in the scriptures, in friendships. When people love us, when people forgive us, like rays of sunshine coming through our blinds, we see light like that in our life. But one day darkness will cease and only light will remain. God's light will cover the earth and everyone will know God. Revelation 21 articulates this hope that one day the light of Jesus will cover the earth and darkness will be no more. Jesus as the temple, Jesus as the light. And both of these things lead to the third, which is Jesus as the center. You see, the temple was the center of religious life for Jewish people. The sun is the center of our our universe, our, our galaxy, excuse me. The sun is the center of our galaxy around which everything turns. And the moon was the center around which the calendar for the Jewish people was made. All of these things are the centers, and yet here in the new heaven and the new earth, none of those things exist, and we just have Jesus, the center of all things. Even the kings of earth, who a few chapters before were at war with God, are now coming, acknowledging this center of all things, Jesus, bringing their glory and honor to him. This passage from Revelation 21 and 22 teaches us about Jesus as the temple and the light and the center in this new heaven and new earth, this hope that we have for the future. And what does this passage teach us about what Jesus will do? One of the most fascinating parts of this vision for me of this new heaven and new earth is the image of this garden John envisions this garden, this water flowing from the throne and the tree of life. And this harkens us back to a different garden, doesn't it? In creation, there was a garden. There was a river and a tree and fruit. In the beginning, a garden, and in the end, a garden. This time with significant differences in this garden. And in the garden in Genesis, the tree of life was there, but also the tree of knowledge of good and evil the tree that the man and the woman took fruit from that ruined everything. But in the new heaven and new earth, only the tree of life is mentioned. In Genesis, the entrance of sin brought with it the curse of death, but John sees this city in this garden and says, the curse is no more. In Revelation, we see the garden of Eden renewed, restored, recreated, and a few things are missing. As George Eldon Ladd points out in his commentary on Revelation, the final chapters of the Bible echo the first chapters. Creation, a garden, the tree of life, God with God's people. In the beginning, God created a world that was good and in the end, God will renew that world and make all things right. The last two chapters of Revelation echo the first two chapters of Genesis, when God says, look, I am making all things new. What an image. But at this point, I have to ask, is this what we picture when we picture life after death? When you hear the words of the apostle John in the last two chapters of Revelation, this new heaven and new earth, this holy city with Jesus as the center, is this what we picture? Because I often hear Christians talking about heaven as, you know, it's okay because I'll, I'll go to heaven. I hear them talking about life after death as an escape, a rest, a vacation perhaps, departing from this world and entering heaven. And I get that really because the harshness of this world makes us long for rest. And while it is true that God's people will go to heaven to be with God after death, we see this in John 13, Jesus preparing a place for us in Luke 23, when Jesus tells a thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In First Thessalonians 4, that those who have died have been brought, brought to God with Jesus. And while this is true, Theologians like N.T. Wright claim that our passage today in Revelation reveals a deeper truth about our ultimate destination after this life and after heaven, when all things are made new. When my dad died three years ago as the resident family pastor, I found myself writing his eulogy. And I didn't wanna write, it's okay, he's in heaven. Not because it isn't true, but because that's not where my hope lies. It gives me comfort, don't get me wrong. It gives me comfort knowing that, that nothing in this world, not life or death can separate us from the love of God and that my dad is with God and is loved by God. But that is not my full hope. In this vision and revelation, God describes, or John describes true hope life there are people there are nations there are people serving God doing meaningful work this sounds a lot to me more like full life it makes me believe Jesus when he says I've come to bring them life and life abundantly is this how we envision life after death Or like my friend Josh's little girl standing in a bucket of ocean water, are we completely happy with a tiny little portion of what God has promised us and refuse to look up and see what Revelation describes as this giant vastness of what life will be after death? In 2016, a TV show came out that sparked a good deal of conversation about what life after death will look like. It was called The Good Place. And it was a show that imagined this. What is life after death? And the basic premise was that there was this, this woman named Eleanor Shellstrop, played by Kristen Bell, and she was a horrible person on earth, just really selfish, always taking advantage of people, no morality to speak of whatsoever. And she dies and wakes up in the good place, in heaven. And she quickly realizes she's there by mistake, A technical error accidentally put her in the good place and not the bad place. (laughs) And the show is about all the lengths she will go to to stay in the good place and not be sent to the bad place. And while some in the church weren't too happy that a secular comedy was poking fun at the idea of the afterlife, and I get that, I thought the show was a great view into the psyche of America. What does the average, maybe non church going person think it's gonna happen after death. And you know, the good place has a very specific view of the perfect house and the perfect spouse and a vacation and frozen yogurt on every corner and everything you could ever want at, the, at, the, at a word. And you can ride unicorns and fly in the sky if you really want to. But there are two things about the show that really stuck out to me. The first is that God is completely absent. There's no mention in the entire show of God or Jesus, the whole show about the afterlife, and they do not play any role. In fact, the only way you get to the good place is by doing moral things on life, and you get morality points, and if you get enough, you get to go to the good place. But the second thing that that stood out to me about the show was the utter lack of hope in it. The writers of the show seem to believe that a heaven where you can have everything you want and all the fun you want and have the perfect dream house and the perfect spouse and you can fly around and ride unicorns is ultimately boring. That eventually it would lose its luster and perhaps it was just better to die and not exist than to go to such a place. And I'm sorry for the spoiler, but the show is eight years old, so remember that when I say this. But that's what Eleanor Shellstrop chooses in the end. Death. I've had more conversations about life after death because of that show than I ever had before. But I have to say, when I talk to Christians about it, their views of heaven don't seem all that different than the good place. They too dream of a mansion and everything good you could possibly want being there just with a little bit of Jesus added in. But here's the problem with that. The goal was never heaven. The goal for Christians is not a disembodied, perfect, good place. The goal isn't an internal vacation. The goal is life, life with Jesus. Jesus. And it doesn't have to wait to be experienced after death. It can be experienced now. And scripture seems to say that there is this, this place that we will go to, a heaven is waiting for us when we die. But according to Revelation, it does not end there. For after that, we have true life in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus as the temple, the center of all of it. And I'm not saying we know everything about what life after death will be like. And I really love that line from the kid's book. Prophecy is just a curtain a little bit pulled back. But this vision of John gives me hope that what we think of now as life after death is merely a bucket of ocean water. And there's a whole ocean waiting just a few yards away. Because God is faithful. And I think the writers of The Good Place were were right about one thing. I think life after death, no matter how perfect or fun, is utterly meaningless without Jesus at the center. God will make good on God's promises. Heaven and earth will one day be made new and we will have life in a world restored, renewed, with lives of purpose and reconciled relationships with others because Jesus is the temple, the light, the center. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are so good to us. Thank you for being gracious and merciful and thank you that The taste of your goodness that we have had is merely a bucket of the immense vastness of your goodness that we will experience when all things are made new. Jesus, be our center, not only then, but now. Give us life that revolves around you. We love you and it is in your name that we pray, amen.